Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor for this ultimate garage. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garage condos and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts who we love. All of your auto enthusiasts like me and you've always probably picturing your perfect garage to hold your dream cars and Metron Garage is one of those companies that can build it to your wishes. They do have eight models to choose from, including two-story options, all with a very modern look and feel to them. Now, I've mentioned before a few of them that have really caught my eye, so I highly recommend you go to metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. Also for this episode, this is the audio recording of a live stream event we held this past Monday, and unfortunately, there were some behind-the-scenes sound issues. I still don't know what the issues were, but all of us could hear each other fine, but the recording only captured me towards the end. So this is the edited version, so we did not get to hear McKeel's last pick, which was a Jaguar D-Type, or his Keep Cashing Crush, unfortunately. Thank you for those who are watching along and giving me a heads up. I do appreciate it, and I hope you enjoyed this slightly edited episode. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley with the Collector Car Podcast. We have a very special edition today. We're going to go over the ultimate garage picks with CEO of Haggerty, McKeel Haggerty. So I'd like to invite not only McKeel, but a special guest as well. So... Uh, Mikhail, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. This should be fun. <laughs> you always sure hope so, and I yep. appreciate your time. And I also have the president of RM Sotheby's joining us, Kenneth Ahn. Ken, how you doing, buddy? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. And if you're not listening to this live streaming, uh, you can check it out either at the Facebook page for RM Sotheby's, for Haggerty, as well as, as the Collector Car Podcast and the audio-only ver- version will be posted on Thursday. So, McKeel, um, this is a tough task I gave you here. I asked you to pick out 10 cars for your ultimate garage, and yep. uh, I'm sure it's been difficult. I do have some information I do want to share. Um, yep. I do love what you do as a, as a company and as a business, so you should be able to see it now. Um, yep. I do want to review each of these cars as well as some of the Haggerty market trends. Uh, so are you ready to go? Ready to rock. I, I, hopefully we can, uh, you know, I'll get them right. <laughs> well, I got pictures here, so that should help. <laughs> yeah, that, that does help. <laughs> yeah, so the first one I have here is a 1967 Porsche 911S Coupe. So why is this car one of your top 10 picks for your Ultimate well, Garage? Well, this, this was the only weird one for me. Honestly, that's why I just put it number one and put it, knock it to knock it out of the way. It, it almost shouldn't have been on here in a way, but... This was my first car, and I still have it. Now, mine is polo red. The picture here is green. Okay. Um, but I, um, I bought a 67 Porsche 911S when I was 13 years old, just 13 years old, restored it with my dad in the garage, drove it through high school, oh, okay. parked it um, event, uh, in kind of after college. It was, I, it was a pretty workman-like restoration job that I did on it. In fact, I didn't have the money to restore a lot of it so so this one kind of goes 
it just kind of goes with me, but I still believe it would be a, a part of my, an ultimate car in my garage. I like the early short wheelbase, um, you know, air, you know, 911s. And of course, this is the first sport model that the Porsche made in the 911 series that just happens to be that, that first year, 1967. And it was the year I was born, 1967. So this one kind of ticks a lot of boxes for me. And um, so it, I'd be kind of hard pressed to not have it on the list. Mikhail just breached himself by uh, disclosing the year. Of the <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. By the way, I, lo I love this new role of just, I get to comment and play Monday morning quarterback. Oh, yeah. You're like that. You're the judgmental voice in my head. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so this one, by the way, Greg, sorry to jump in. I got to say, when I saw you know this list, it, it didn't surprise me at all. In fact, Mikhail, I don't know if you know this, but when I first heard about Haggerty as a partner, and then obviously who runs Haggerty, looked up Mikhail Haggerty. This was actually one of the first articles that came up in Google search. And so I got to read about this car and your story. I think there was actually an article with you, younger version of you, and forgive me for saying this, but a lot more hair, <laughs> in the front, front area as the car is being restored. I remember seeing that making an impressionable impact. But oh yeah. Oh, was yeah. it, it was a, or something that you paid for the car? Well, you know, the car, my car was, uh, it was, Polo red. When I got it, it was literally in a snowbank. I have a picture of it, me digging it out when I was 13. Um, but it kind of faded to the, like this pink color as, as what happens with red. And then I loved black cars. So I painted it black uh, in high school at my restoration. And then when I had it re-restored, I painted it back to the original red because that was the right thing to do. But, you know, go figure that I had this first car that was actually a cool car and it's still a cool car. And it's, it's like, I don't know if it'd be on everybody's top 10 list, but you know, it's pretty, pretty high up there. I think a lot of people would say they'd want an early air cooled 911. They just probably want a, you know, 2.7 RS or something like that. But this is, this is the precursor, the forerunner of the 2.7 RS. Well, you picked it for the exact reason I wanted you to pick it because I had a personal connection. It's not just like, you're yeah. not picking the best Porsche of all time. You're picking one that's personal to you. That's even, right. even though it's, I show a green one, you had a red one. So, uh, so that's really cool. So now just looking at some of the value trends for these cars, you can see this is all Haggerty data value trends here. You can just see how they really went nuts 2013 to 2015. And on the right there, I kind of show how they're doing against the 2015 peak. So they're still down percent, down 9% from the 2015 peak. But then you can see they've obviously held their own for quite a while now. A slight decline recently. But uh, where do you see Porsche, early Porsche 911 valuations going in the future? Do you think they'll ever eclipse the, the 2015? Well, you know, if RM Sotheby's would stop selling so many of them, uh, <laughs> maybe. So yeah, I, I had to throw that back at you, Ken. But, um, you know, I mean, I was actually really grateful when, not because, I mean, look, I paid $500 for my car, so I'm in the money. Uh, no matter what, I'm right. in the money. But, um, um, you know, is that I always felt that early 911s were just completely underappreciated, you know, in almost every other brand. European sports car brand. I mean, even Corvettes had more, uh, you know, sizzle from a sales right. standpoint prior to that big run up to in, you know, kind of started in 12 really and, and up into 13 and up into 15. Arguably, it may have gotten a little overheated, you know, when it came to air kind of all air cooled 911s being treated equally. But um, I think they just finally came into their own. And, you know, so I think, you know, you're, you've seen that new bench, even if you look at like 
call it the 2017 number, you have a new base. You know, there's like a new foundational value of these things. Um, they are, you know, probably an awful lot of them are have been restored already. Um, they are not easy cars to restore. A, a little bit of a bummer, you know, if one was really ragged on, they just, they rusted like crazy. And it's also, one of the things I find fascinating, you go back to the early, you know, Porsche had dealerships everywhere around North America. Then they closed a lot of them and they kind of concentrated more around cities. So a lot of these cars kind of scattered where there were early dealerships, um, you know, in kind of funny ways. And they got parked, you know, eventually they got parked. That's how a barn find, you know, happens is that, you know, eventually there's some expensive repair that somebody doesn't want to take on. They sit there. Um, so the only problem with these is if they're really gone, they're too expensive to restore. But, you know, you're not going to see these go substantially down, you know, from that, call it, you know, 17, 2015, 2017 baseline. They're, they're, they'll stay there if not go up. Right. Okay. Greg, coming from, from uh, Wall Street background back in the days, I think this reminds me of situations where stocks get rerouted and yeah. people say all of a sudden it's trading at a higher multiple. Why is that? People, the market all of a sudden realizes the value of it that it didn't six months ago or a year ago. And I, I think in this case, even if you look at the chart, there was a bit of re-rating as, as, as Mikhil said earlier. What is interesting is that the, the high, even in looking at the, uh, the Haggerty price guide, number one or number two conditions have held up pretty well mm -hmm. uh, after that re-rating. But what we are seeing in the overall, especially in our auction world, is that once there's a big move up, as everyone's sort of uh, more interested in a particular year, you know, year make and model, that over time that starts to then differentiate in terms of quality. Right. The high quality ones tend to do much better, and the lower quality ones tend to tend to taper off a little bit if it gets too heated. Right, right, yep. And I do love how you kind of have the financial indices that you can compare it to. So I just looked at this briefly, and it actually <laughs> beat all four of them. So. Uh, that's not the case for every single one of your cars you picked, but I'll move on because we do have nine more cars to cover here. Well, the next one is the Aston Martin DB4. So tell us about this car and why does this make it into your ultimate garage? Well, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, my I used to watch the James Bond movie marathons with my dad <laughs> and, you know, fell in love with Aston Martin. And of course, he drove, you know, to be clear, he drove a DB5. But, right. you know, when I grew up looking at cars or the car, the movie car was a DB5, of course. Um, but, you know, I didn't grow up around cars like this. I, I learned them as I, you know, entered the kind of more professional side of the car space, going to a lot of car events. And, and almost immediately, I recognized that... Um, you know, I, I like the look of the DB4 better than the five. The fives are worth a little bit more. I think the fives got a little bit too big. Um, and, you know, really this is that kind of classic British sporty car, you know, it's a GT style. Yep. Um, but, you know, it's, it's as Jay Leno once said, isn't this really just a Jaguar that went to graduate school? <laughs> right. uh, you know, so I, I, I just, I always kind of liked them and I, I think they're cool. I think, you know, they, they certainly like, a bunch of these, you know, cars you look at, they had a big run up there for a while. They were always, I think, really underappreciated. They were kind of a couple hundred grand for a long time. And then they got up to maybe high and, you know, I don't think they ever touched a million, but kind of high hundreds of thousands and have, and have since come down a little bit. But I just think they're cool. I like the aluminum. You know, I like that it's a, you know, touring Superleggera design built in England and, you know, love the sound. They're just cool. 
All right, Ken, what are your issues with this? Is this a good pick? What are your thoughts no, on it? I think it's a fantastic pick. And the reason why I say that, Mikhail, um, ahead of this, I actually asked. Um, so Felix Archer is a core specialist for us in London, his, whose father is Stephen Archer, who's a you know, well-known Western historian. And I asked him about the bomb cars and, and DB4, DB5. Interestingly, and I don't know if he knew this, he told me that the actual first Bond car was a DB4 Series 5 Vantage cover headlight huh. that was used as a prototype DB5, but indeed, it was actually DB4 that was the original Bond car, not DB5. So that, you know, I think when you said Bond car and DB4, this is kind of an interesting factoid, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, now, you went deep on that one, Ken. Thank you. <laughs> now, why not the drop-top version or uh, the DB4 uh, GT? Almost, well, you know, the DB4 GT is nice. I like the GT. I have, a couple, I still have one little one at home. So I like being able to uh, pack my little one back there in the fake um, little back seat. <laughs> the shelf. <laughs> um, and I think almost all of these cars look better as closed cars. Uh, I just, I do, you know, it's like whenever somebody, I mean, whenever somebody talks about a 911 and buying, you know, a cabriolet version of it. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> it's just better <laughs> as a closed car, uh, you know? And I mean, no offense to all of those, you know, turbo S uh, owners, you know, that in Palm beach, but I like closed cars here. I mean, it's just as a general rule. Right. And even, I'm even willing to give, you know, uh, I'm willing to give value on a better looking design. And, you know, the cars almost all would have been designed as closed cars anyway. Right. So, sure. yeah. Okay. No, that's great. Fair enough. Yep, fair enough. All right, look at the values here. They've been really strong. It's ironic, this is one of the few ones that has not decreased since the high of September of 2015. So it's actually up almost 14%. So it just kind of shows how they continue to appreciate in value, you know, basically flat the last couple of years. Uh, does this surprise you at all? Or is this pretty much what? You know? It looks like it's holding steady. You know, there's an oddity to DB4s in particular. Um, and Ken, you may know, the story even better than I do, but there's um, supposedly a Kuwaiti sheik who's kind of cornered the market at DB4s who has like hundreds of them. It's the only car he collects. Wow. And, you know, when you're look, talking about a car where they're, they're kind of numbered in the hundreds almost some years, uh, any one person collecting that many can change, can move the market. Um, so who knows? You know, if, if, if they start selling the cars, then we're all that we're doomed. <laughs> yes, yes. Yep. Do you know so, that story, Ken? Have you heard that one? Yeah, yeah I, I won't confirm or deny the specifics, although <laughs> I, do, I do think there was definitely some uh, truth to that rumor. Well, yeah, there you go. So, yep. Still kind of holding steady, it looks like. Yeah, and it okay. pretty much tied with the Dow Jones. So, yeah. that's kind of interesting. All right. So, the next one on your list is the 64 to 65 Shelby Cobra, specifically the rack and pinion cars. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about this pick? Well, you know, I think if you were to pick one truly iconic, you know, American sports, you know, the, the, the just the story, the whole thing, uh, you know, when it comes to Cobras, I've, I've driven a lot of them, never, never owned one. I'd always want, I've always wanted a 289. I think the 427s become just ungainly, you know, they're just too much. Right. And, you know, even though the, you know, I think that idea of, you know, the, the kind of both the Shelby world and the muscle car world of more is more. I think this is one of these cases where less is a little bit more when it comes to this car. And I think that the smaller, uh, you know, the smaller engine actually brings out that little bit of Englishness of mm -hmm. the whole thing 
which is missing in the 427 cars, which were really much more purpose built. Uh, so I just like them. I think they're awesome. Um, and I think they're holding pretty steady value wise from what I can tell. Yeah, we'll see that in a second. Yeah. So, Ken, what are your uh, thoughts on this car? Uh, so my thoughts, uh, I, I, I love this car. In fact, um, Rob Myers has one of these and it's sitting in one of his, well, his man cave that I get to stare at every week. Um, from a personal perspective, the biggest drawback is I could not figure out a way to fit myself inside of it. I try to sit in it multiple times and I thought, man, it looks so good. I'd love to drive it, but I can't. Uh, so that's, that's a downside. Uh, on the value side, you know, I don't know. I'd be interested to see what the data says, but during my last four and a half years with RM, it seems like the overall values have held up pretty well. Although this, I think, is also the, the case of the good quality versus bad quality price difference. Uh, the, the, the difference is widening for sure. Right, right. And now, Mikhail, do you have a lot of experience comparing the rack and pinion to the worm and whatever it's called, uh, worm and steering? I mean, have you Yeah, I mean, it's a... I mean, it's just, you really want the rack and pinion, you know, it just, you know, it, it starts, it holds up a lot better under power and in cornering and, and that sort of thing, you know, and of course you get a lot of these cars were pretty heavily modified if they were, you know, club raced and all of these sorts of things. So there's right. probably one of the biggest challenges I think of buying those cars is how much were they modified by their previous owners, you know, along the way, right. um, and, and I'm, I'm not 100% a believer that every car has to be absolutely Concord original perfect by any stretch. I like cars that are, you know, you feel good driving about. But, right. you know, of the 289s, these are the best. Right. And you can see the results here. You're right. They've just been on a steady climb up. You know, little blips here and there. And they're actually a little soft the last year, so 52 weeks. But overall, yeah. I mean, from the 15 peak up over 14%, they just continued to... Uh, to go up in value. So I always say, you know, buy them when you can, because you might not be able to afford them one day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, don't you wish you could take today's money back to 2000? Right. Right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and here it is. It does, it, they have beat the Dow Jones and the S&P 500. Okay. Yep. All right, let's move to the next one, the doozy. So tell us about this Duesenberg. Well, I like cars from all eras, as my, as my um, list suggests. And I own a Cadillac 1931 Cadillac V16. I own a 37 Packard 12. I was, I like high cylinder count cars, but you know, um, not that I'm suggesting can, you know, make me an offer or to, you know, tra trade those out to find one of these. Uh, but you know, I, I think the ultimate, you know, big American pre-war classic would be to own a Duesenberg. And of course, I think, you know, convertible Victoria's one of the most attractive body styles of custom coachwork cars. And of course, if you get a supercharged one, great. I don't think it's actually that necessary, but it'd be the ultimate to have an SJ. So. Yeah. You'll save about 500 grand on that supercharger option from what I can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember, I remember an original supercharger in a box selling at an auction for 125 grand. Wow. For one of these, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's a pricey option. Well, then you can see these have pretty much haven't gone up or down because they're so rare and so few come to the market and they're typically trading about where they always have traded. So uh, they did not beat any of the markets. So I did not put that in here. <laughs> yeah. But they're, but they're almost always steady. You know, yeah. I think, I think they actually were kind of down a few years back when other cars were up when, you know, Ferraris always seemed to drive the market. Yep. Um, 
great Duesenbergs always sell well. So I will own one one day, no matter what. And whether it's a Rolston or a Dietrich, you know, or whatever body style, right? You know, doesn't matter. I'll take it. Yep. So our chief marketing officer, Ian Kelleher, once told me that Duesenbergs are very much to a finance guy that, that came into the, the car world said, hey, they're like FDIC insured investments. They won't, you know, shoot up through the roof, but they won't go down. Right. That's right. That's right. right. All right, the next one is this beautiful Barrett Cadillac Eldorado. Uh, tell us about this car, 1959 specifically. Well, I, I actually have a 60 uh, Cadillac convertible that is one of my kids' favorite going out to ice cream cars. I think in everybody's ultimate car collection, there needs to be a going out to ice cream car that you can pile a whole bunch of kids in and go. <laughs> um, and I like the 60, but the 59 is better, and the Barrett's is the high watermark of all Cadillacs of this era. Um, you know, and if they're just instantly recognizable by the fins yeah. and, you know, the Brits being that, you know, extra special package on the whole thing, they're just crazy. I, I figure restoring a, a 59 Brits, the Chrome would be 60 grand yep. <laughs> day <Yeah>. alone. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty cool. You know, the challenge is, you know, I think fifties era American cars have kind of been, you know, they're, they're not necessarily the best investment right now but i just think you get so many miles of smiles and that's yeah. that's what really matters to me here right yeah what are your thoughts ken i i, I could see why he chose it and ice cream car totally got you know hit it for me i but I, if i'm not mistaken i think this was the year that had the biggest fins toward this generation at least and tallest tallest really stands yeah. up to me with a with a double tail it's, it's a cool pick so, Mikhail, was it the fins that put you over the top for the 59 versus the 57, 58 Brits? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, 50, the 57 just didn't have – I have a 57 Cadillac, too, but not a Brits. They they just didn't have the style. I mean, this, this car just – this was the year. It was the mark. And right. it's almost as if if you look at our 60, and I parked it right next to this car in the photo – it's like they just knew the 59 was too outrageous and they had to just dial it back. You know, it's yeah. just like they said, you know what? That's ridiculous. We got to we got to start selling the thing. Yeah, tone <laughs> it down. Uh, and I just think if you're going to have something ridiculous, just let it be ridiculous. So why not? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we actually <laughs> just sold one of these in Scottsdale and it was one of the rare one of the 50 with the bucket seats, which I didn't even know that was a rarity on these until uh, our sale. So that was pretty cool. Look, it's in pink color. I think it was yeah, color. it's kind of a crazy yeah. pink. Sure. Yeah, a lot of them are pink. And they've been holding steady, you know, looking at the uh, the value trends. They're slightly down when you look at the last three years. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, over five or eight years, I don't know, we've been having some very strong results on Bromes and Baritzes lately. So I don't know if this trend will turn around the, the most recent dip. Um, but they're they're holding their own. I mean, we had a, what was it, Ken? We had a Brome that double low estimate in Scottsdale, which was really kind of nuts. So yeah. There's definitely love out there for these cars. Well, and I think it just, I mean, it represents the high watermark of these manufacturers, right? Yeah. I mean, a Brits, Cadillac Brits, you know, when you start talking about a, like an original Continental right. or any of those, like it's just, it's the best of what those companies built. Um, so I'm, I'm glad. And actually that number one condition, you know, that really says something that American, you know, big American, you know, car would bring more than 200 grand. Right. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And here's how it is against the markets. So let's move to the next car. Okay, so put your money in GameStop if you if you only like Cadillac <laughs> Versus. In GameStop, um, right. 
All right. So I always said that I'd have a I'd, I'd have a going. Um, you know, arguably the Roadster may be the better car, um, especially later Roadster when you get disc brakes and everything. But I don't think there's anything more iconic than this. And a little bit like you know Ken was describing the FDIC value invest you know backing of uh, the Duesenberg investment. These these have been just kind of moving steadily for a long time within about you know I don't know eight to ten percent of value shifts up and down, um, and I actually get some some uh, flack from some of our collectors about our data about these because they said you're not tracking Gullwings fast enough. You need to update uh, <laughs> faster than once a month on Gullwing prices. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, you're talking about a total universe of you know a couple thousand cars, whatever, nineteen hundred. And um, um, I, I just think they're cool. They're awesome. And I can tell you, having been in a lot of rallies around the world where I am not in a Gullwing and I get my, the doors blown off my car by some guy in a Gullwing and he looks comfortable <laughs> and relaxed and, you know, like probably sipping tea and listening to some <laughs> classical music in there. Um, I just I'm, I'm blown away by how fast they are and, and what an amazing vehicle they are. Yeah. Joe, I got a question for you. You know, obviously we see a lot of different collectors. Some collectors, original rudge wheels, factory fitted luggage, and tartan inserts are, you know, some of them say absolutely, and you want the original one. You have other clients who say, ah, oh, yeah, but not, in fact, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, rudge wheels that you put on later on is fine as long as I get to drive the car. What's your view, if you were to buy one on value, and would you pay the premium for having the correct rudge wheels and uh, you know, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The Rudge wheels gives it that kind of rakish look, you know, whether they were original or not. I mean, my gosh, you know what the tool rolls cost for these yeah. things. Um, and that they're, they're actually people that rent the tool rolls if you're um, showing them. But, you know, I'll tell you what, I saw a non-Rudge wheel car in this like midnight blue with a gray interior. Wow. And it was absolutely so elegant i just couldn't even believe it you know so i think you can kind of take these things in two different directions which is you know do you go sporty rudge wheel look and just pay the premium for it and seek it out and go for it or do you just go full elegant and i'm kind of drawn to the full elegant in a way um just bluntly speaking because you know, you're going to have in my ultimate collection, you're going to have other sporty cars. So does yeah. this one have to be the sportiest one? I don't think it does. You know, I've been meaning to ask you on all these cars, what's your color combo on this car? Well, this, you know, probably the classic, right? I like that kind of dark gray or, you know, with red. Um, honestly, I think you picked the perfect one here. Um, you know, the silver and the tartan kind of thing, as, as Ken talked about, I just like there, you see so many of them in, in my circles that, Having something a little bit more like this, this would be great. I did you ever see the the one that I think it was Sir Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle's grandson's purple one? No. Oh my gosh, that was so cool. Now, not that you would do it, but you walked up and you're like, oh my god. Now it wasn't like Barney purple. It was like you know a little bit cooler than that. But one of the things I I was fascinated by, I talked to Paul Russell, who's probably restored more of these at a higher level than maybe any individual, uh, you know, restorer. And he said, these were actually available in 40 color combinations. Wow. Oh, wow. And I just had no idea. I just figured, you know, kind of, it'd be very Teutonic, kind of German, you know, you get your five choices and that's it. No, he said they were, 
there's a very wide range of colors available because they're really trying to appeal to an American market. And a little bit of um, trivia, if, you, if I just have a second, if you don't mind, I discovered at an event once that um, Mercedes-Benz was actively trying to get American military uh, officers, former military officers that fought in World War II to buy these. And if you ordered a going, they would send you, the, actually the German government through Mercedes would send you a thousand dollar rebate wow. for war rep for war reparations <laughs> for your purchase of your going. Wow. wow. So it was like a five or six thousand dollar car, like the early ones. And so think about it. I mean, it was like a 20 percent discount off of the value of the car to get a thousand dollars. And I actually saw one of these canceled checks. Wow. And it's that in the memo field, you know, to Colonel so-and-so Mercedes Benz <laughs> and in the memo field, it said war reparations, which was. <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to revisit all your cars on color, but I am curious about the AC Cobra. What would be your color combo on that one? All black. You know, that would have to be a black and black car, I think. Okay. So, yeah. Well, here, here are how the Gull Wings, you know, if you did update this monthly, it might be a little bit different, but here's how they're doing so far. <laughs> so still down significantly from the 15 peak, but you can see the last three years they've basically three years and one years are up 6.7% when you look at the recent increase on these cars. It doesn't seem like a color change has much impact on these if it's done correctly. Would you agree with that or would you disagree? You know, they actually have a process where you can officially change the color and have it recognized by the factory as long as you do it in another original color, which I think is kind of a cool feature. Only Mercedes would right. do this. <laughs> um, but I think it's kind of one of these examples of, like Ken said, I think that just the price was reset. It's a million dollar plus car. Yep. Is it a $2 million car? I kind of have my doubts, but it's a million dollar plus car. So whether it's a million two or a million four, right. you know, that's where it's going to kind of sit. I remember standing next to Craig Jackson a number of years ago at an auction when he bought one, he bought one for 150 grand when that was sort of on the low end, wow. 200, 225 was kind of the high end. And that was when they shot up. So sort of early 2000s. And uh, don't, again, don't you all wish we could take today's money back to then? So <laughs> yeah, ish. for sure. Yeah. And then this one did beat the Dow Jones just by a little bit. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Hanging in there. Oh, actually, here's a question. This one brings it to me. Why not the alloy Gullwing? Because I noticed you picked the alloy 250 GT. Why not the alloy Gullwing? Oh, yeah, I, I suppose. that. Well, then it would be just a different category altogether. <laughs> okay. And you're just chasing, you know, you're chasing unicorns at that point. Well, uh, this is a unicorn here. So tell us about this one. Yeah, you know, I, I don't. Uh, well, until last year, I, I actually, my... I bought for my wife a, a Maserati uh, Vignali Spider, and it's the first Italian car I've ever owned and never owned a Ferrari modern or vintage or anything. And I've always said, like, if I were to have a vintage one, what would be in it? And I just I just love the 250 short wheelbases. Um, and yeah, an alloy would be the certainly the preferred one. But, you know, I'd, I'd take any one. Um, and uh, I just I think they're amazing. I think there's a sort of elegance to them the sound of that engine when it's on song and, you know, somebody's just running at a high RPM. There's, there's just really nothing like it, you know, kind of maybe the ultimate tour mobile. And I, I you know, but yet not so outrageous. Right. Uh, you know, when people say, Oh, I want a Testarossa. I'm like, really, <laughs> you know, like really, you, you going to bring that, you know, cause I think, you know, I wouldn't have the white wardrobe, right wardrobe to drive a Testarossa anywhere. Um, and this just is a car that I think, it would suit me. I actually, when I was trying to figure out, like there had to be a Ferrari on this list for me, it would either be a 250 short wheelbase 
or a 275. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think those are really cool. Again, 67, year I was born, you know, a little bit, but this is just a little bit closer to the perfect era of Ferrari when they made the GTOs and we're building the LMs. And so that's why I picked it. Okay. Yeah. Ken, what are your thoughts? I think it's a great pick. I, I've never driven one, but I've obviously been around as they were being started and moved around auction venues. The part, part that really surprised me when I first got into the space was how much of a price difference there is for matching versus non-matching, even if it's the same comp show wheelbase, for example. And that seems to be, at least what I'm, he- what I'm learning is that in the recent years, that's becoming more of a discerning criteria for a lot of the, uh, a lot of the collectors. Would you care about that much, Mikhail? Because on one hand, I get the collectability of it. On the other hand, is it does it does it justify the premium if you want to really drive it and, and enjoy the car? Right. Uh, I guess it depends on what your purpose is, but I'd be curious to see if numbers matching is something that, and Classic case certified is something that is a criteria for you for your ultimate garage. Well, I used to make fun of the you know Classique program um, just because it felt like a kind of a money grab on Ferrari's part, but I appreciate what they're doing. Um, I do think drive, I mean, look, the drivability of these cars, the, the leap to hear from say a TDF, you know, from five or six years earlier, which a lot of people, you know, you were to park them in a lineup and you could tell a novice, hey, look, this is a lineup of Ferraris and they could see that those cars are in a family with each other. You know, even a, you know, a, a California Spider or even a series one Cabriolet. But there, there were a lot of refinements by the time they got here that made it a better car. They run a little bit quieter, um, you know, whereas like TDFs can be a little loud if you want to go on like a wine country tour in them for what it's worth. But, uh, you know, on the numbers matching part, you know, with this much value in a car, running the car with a backup engine um, mm-hmm. or not having it just to be able to go out and drive it, I think that's essential. I mean, the one thing I would say out of all of these on my list, I would drive every single one of them. And, you know, would I show it a little bit? Yes, but I would just drive it and I would get stone chips in it and I would go get it wet in a rally. And, you know, if you're that worried about a car that you can't drive it, you just shouldn't own it in my view, period. I just don't, I disagree with any car being too valuable to drive or anything like that. So I I think with this, you know, again, it becomes an affordability thing. You want to put that much money in a car, you know, can you afford to drive it? Um, You know, um, and, and afford to get stone chips in it and get it wet. That's, you just gotta be ready for that. Right. Yeah, and that's what I love. Uh, Jay Leno will say, you know, restore to 100%, drive it down to 20%, <laughs> then restore <laughs> it back up to 100%. You know, I love that. I love the way they think about that. So here's the numbers on it. Uh, obviously, uh, it's a strong car. It, yeah, it's an alloy though, you know. Yeah, so. it's an alloy, yep. So. What's that non-alloy, sort of six million, I suppose, six, seven, yeah, maybe? Exactly. Yeah, so condition, I think it's somewhere between six and eight is what we've seen, I think, yeah. in our office. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that of the non-alloy but prettiest color combinations, and even though you didn't ask, you know, showing the red one, um, we have a mutual friend of ours in RM Sotheby's who has one that is white and the stripe is a burgundy over the top. Wow. And the interior is saddle brown. And that thing, when you walk up to it, you're just like, <laughs> oh my god so it proves that you can have like a truly great elegant looking ferrari that isn't red right. um and they the cool thing though is i would say like the short wheelbase came in some cool more and i don't know the names of the italian italian names of the colors but they came in some more like kind of burgundy darker reds yeah. that i think are very very attractive a little more elegant a little less 
you know, arrest me red. Right. All right. On to the Mercer. You got to have an early high horsepower car. And I was sort of torn between, I have a 1917 Peerless that it's kind of a cobbled together Peerless, but there's nothing like a 1917 V8 going, you know, 90 horsepower and you're going 70 miles an hour. Uh, but the two, I think, high watermarks of cars from this era, you know, you're looking at a Stutz Bearcat or you're looking at a Mercer race about. The Mercer is the best of them all. And um, I've stared at a bunch of them. I've talked at a bunch of owners of them. I've talked to David Gooding about, you know, his love and his family's love of the Mercer. Um, I just love to have one of these things. They're just so cool. Just so cool. So, yeah. What's your thoughts, Ken? Well, so I'll be honest, uh, completely honest. I didn't know what Mercer Race About was until a few months ago. I happened to be listening on a different podcast. And Greg, I'm sorry that I was there. <laughs> there are other podcasts. There are others, yes. But in that, um, David Gooding was actually the guest. And he was yeah. talking about Mercer Race About and his father. And now he owns it and him driving it and memories of it. And that what that's what caused me to actually look, look it up and learn more about it. And... Uh, then, of course, you know, I read more and more about it. And it's, it's spectacular in terms of the car of its age. And at that time, it seems like it's, it was the best car to have. Um, I also think it's really interesting how, Mikhail, your 9-11 story or, or David Gooding, as I heard on the podcast or with this Mercer race about or my lowly uh, W124E320 Mercedes. <laughs> but I think there's something in each of us that I think it's, you know, as car collectors, that it's not just about value or the performance. It's some nostalgic value or something that has a significance in our heart that when you when we think about your ultimate garage even though that is you know two million cars produced platform that's not collectible in any you know stretch of imagination i would put that as one of the cars that would be in my top 10 or whatever those cars may be well the subjective value is you know what what matters i i think in so many ways and it's great that you also get rewarded with real investment, you know, value and economic value. But I think that piece, you know, it just matters so much, you know, and my, my list has so many wide variations, but, you know, like people who say, Oh, I'd like, you know, I'd like a modern supercar list with a, you know, a LaFerrari and a P1 McLaren and a Bugatti and a blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's almost, I know it's not the same car, but you don't get any different real characteristics when you go that narrow and I'm kind of a believer that we need to maintain the kind of a collective muscle memory to be able to enjoy and, and enjoy and appreciate cars like this one, you know, and, 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 and show them to the world. Right. So. Yeah, I, I agree. And now was the American underslung on the part of this discussion? It was, I don't think, I mean, you know, the, the Mercer, an underslung would be great. They made some kind of bigger cars, you know, as underslungs too, that, you know, were more, kind of luxurious cars like this car was famous the mercer in particular because you could buy one new and go race it at the indy 500 and perhaps win and drive it home you know which was the original dual purpose car if you were crazy enough um so you know i i think you know the, the advantage of the underslung is you get that you know low ride and you know right. big, big power that kind of thing right so. now this one wasn't in your database but you ballparked this around a million dollars is that correct well, that'd be pretty light. That's a, that's, it's, you know, in fact, I don't think a, if I don't think a Mercer would sell for less than two. Yeah. Yeah. Probably mid twos. Yeah. Well, yours is a driver, maybe. That's, and mine's a driver. <laughs> yeah. Mine has that, uh, you know, fake engine in it. Right. Well, now let's go to the opposite end of cars that, well, this one was never really, well, kind of raced. Uh, tell us about the F40. 
So I, I debated here because I said I wanted to have like a benchmark watermark, you know, benchmark super, modern supercar, you know, semi-modern supercar. And I elected to not put a truly, truly modern, like a new McLaren. And I also elected not to put an F1, which I, I debated heavily yeah. over because I think an F1, you know, has, it's, it was almost a coin flip, F40 or F1. Uh, or F40 or a, a McLaren F1. I went with the F40 because I just I like to drive one, and it was such a such an amazing car for what it was in the day. And if you get a good one, they're really spectacular. Right. So. Right. Yeah, Ken, how about some comments on this? Because I know we've sold quite a few of these, and from what I can tell in our database, all of them were red except for like the blue race car. <laughs> yeah, except for that uh, pilot car that we had, the LM. But yeah, Mikhail, I think you're financially astute if you can't make the different uh, distinction, or not distinction, but decide between F40 and F1. I'd take the F40 and pocket that difference too in this market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so F40. If, if I could have bought the F1 at the right time, it would have been yeah. the choice. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I think they're fully valued, Ken. <laughs> Uh, so F40, I, I love. Uh, in fact, um, I immigrated to the U.S. in 92, and I think that was the last year that they made these. But I remember this was one of the posters that I had in my room, and I always thought this looked like the ultimate supercar for me. Just an interesting anecdote, and I think car stories are always fun. You know, I, one of the best part about my job is that I get to meet some of you know, the most amazing clients in their collections. And one of the clients, and I don't think he'll mind saying this because his collection was actually in the Road and Track article as well, but uh, a client by the name of Greg Whitney, we had the honor of selling his 250 GPL and he was you know, early member of Microsoft and was his chief software architect for him. In fact, uh, it didn't, the light bulb didn't go in my head. When I started learning computer programming in Korea in the 80s, you know, I, I started learning BASIC and I remember it was called GW BASIC. And uh, then I realized Greg Whitney was uh, associated with GW BASIC. Um, but anyway, uh, in his car garage, he had an F40, and I actually sort of walked around his, you know, cars and asked him which one's, you know, special for him. And he pointed to his red F40. Gosh, I, I don't recall how many miles or kilometers he had on it, but it was definitely, you know, well into five figures. And he said that was the first supercar he ever bought as, you know, once he became quote-unquote successful at Microsoft and something that he just drives around all of the time. And... That's probably the last part that he'll part ways with. And I thought that was really, here's a guy who was really enjoying driving this car as opposed to kind of keeping it as a museum piece. Well, right down to the home stretch here. Let's see these market trends. You can see they really did pop a couple of years ago in the, the 2015, and they're back on the increase. You know, like you said, Ken, they kind of reset themselves, uh, and it looks like they're appreciating pretty good here uh, over the last year and the last three years, up 18%. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for the listeners and the viewers, obviously, check out Haggerty.com if you need to ensure your awesome collectible cars. And if you want to sell or buy a collectible car, obviously, go to RM Sotheby's. We obviously have a lot of cool stuff. So thanks again, McKeel and Ken, for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast. <laughs>